Hello, and welcome to FaithCast, a podcast presented by Publishers Weekly. FaithCast is a series of interviews with some of today's top authors who write about religion, spirituality, and inspiration. I'm Marcia Nelson, Religion Reviews Editor for Publishers Weekly. I'm talking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick, author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover, What It Means, and Why It Matters. Today's FaithCast is sponsored by the publisher, Abingdon Press. Rabbi Evan Moffick is the spiritual leader of Congregation Salel in suburban Chicago. He is one of the country's youngest senior rabbis in Reform Judaism. He is very active in interfaith relations and has appeared as a commentator on CNN and Fox News. His writing has been featured at the Huffington Post. He's also a graduate of Stanford University, which I mentioned because he and Chelsea Clinton were classmates. So welcome, Rabbi Moffick, and let's talk. Thank you. So delighted to be here. Let's start with Passover. I often think of Passover as meal plus meaning. So Mm. tell us about the meaning. Tell us about the story that Passover commemorates. Well, it all centers around the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. the story of the Israelite exodus from Egypt. And it is, it's such a powerful story uh, because it, it speaks to God's role in history, uh, that God is on the side of the oppressed, right? That, you know, if you look back in history, if you were to enter into a time machine and go back to, to ancient Egypt and see these magnificent royal palaces of the Pharaoh uh, and, and living in luxury, and then you would go to the, the pyramids and see this uh, people working as slaves and creating them, and you were to ask, well, who will be around, you know, 4,000, 3,000 years from now? You wouldn't think of this, of the Israelites. And yet, through God's intervention, through uh, a, a uh, miracles, the Israelite people survived. And this is our formation story. This is the, you know, God's great act of redemption. And we remember it uh, not only on Passover, we remember it in every worship service. But Passover is that time when we really experience it and relive it mm-hmm. and put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient Israelites so that we can really appreciate the blessing of freedom. There's much about Passover that's story-oriented, but also food-oriented. So <laughs> let's talk about the, the Seder meal, because it is so symbolic, the, the food and the wine. And I am really curious, what did you think about having to eat bitter herbs when you were <laughs> growing up? I mean, t- tell us about the food, about, about the experience of the food and how that's, that's a, an intrinsic part of, of, of the meaning here. Well, yeah, the the bitter herbs were tough. I remember as a kid, we would compete on like who could get the smallest portion of bitter (laughs) herbs onto their spoon, you know, like, you know, we didn't want to, but we wanted to do it, but like get the tiniest portion possible. But, you know, the, the, the food is just so deeply symbolic. I mean, that's the beauty of Passover is that all the foods have special meanings. So the bitter herbs remind us of the bitterness of slavery. It's not just a lecture. It's not just a, a speaking of uh, an event. It's a reliving, a re-experiencing of an event. And so the foods help us. They're, they're kind of like um, 
experiential aids. So we taste the bitterness of slavery, and then we taste the salt water and experience the tears of slavery, and we eat the matzah to represent the fragility of freedom, this crunchy bread that we have to eat because the Israelites didn't have any time uh, to let their bread rise. They had to get out of Egypt as quickly as possible. And then you have the sweet haroset, um, the, the, the mixture of apples and walnuts and honey that symbolizes two things. You know, it symbolizes the sweetness of freedom, but it also symbolizes the, the mortar that the Israelites used to make bricks. So there's, you know, all the foods have this deeply resonant meaning. So it, it enhances the experience. It's almost like, you know, reliving the Exodus by tasting these different foods. It's just remarkable. It comes across so strongly in the way that you explain it that um, this is a, a reenactment. Um, it's it, you talk about the experience of Passover through these uh, through these food aids, if you will. That that's that's very striking. I think. Yes, you know one of the beautiful things about Passover it's 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 not meant to be just a history lesson. It's mm-hmm. meant to be a reliving. So, in mm-hmm. fact, I I often think one of the core religious values that we learn by by doing Passover is empathy, that we are to put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient Israelites and experience, try to re-experience what they experienced, that this is not, the, the redemption from Egypt is not just something that happened 3,000 years ago. It's mm-hmm. something that happens to us today. And, you know, we say in the, 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 the blessings say, God it is not just our ancestors that you freed from Egypt. You freed me from Egypt, that we are re-entering that story. We're seeing ourselves in that story. You know, there's another way in which this is, is a very personal meaning of liberation. This is something that you do in your home. Tell us about the significance of the home base for the, the celebration of Passover. Right. Well, that's, it's, it's, it's very important. That's, you know, that's partly why I wrote the book, because I do mm-hmm. think celebrating for for Christians, celebrating in the home can be quite enriching. But a lot Mm -hmm. of it goes back why why Passover is in the home actually goes back to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE, where Judaism changed from a temple-based religion, one in Mm -hmm. which, you know, sacrifices were offered at the temple in Jerusalem, to a home-based religion, where the most important events of religious life happened at home. So the home is known as a miniature temple, a, a, you know, in the table, the same Hebrew word for table is the word used in the Bible to mean altar. So in effect, our kitchen table is kind of an altar to God. And so we experience these religious events in the home. And I think that's empowering because, you know, the home is where we can welcome guests. It's where we feel comfortable. It's really where we can learn so much about relationships and uh, you know, a, a church and synagogues are absolutely important too. I mean, I, I don't mean to, to to minimize their importance. I mean, that's my job. I'm a pulpit rabbi, and so I want them to survive and thrive. But there's something beautiful about the home, and something wonderful about doing, uh, experiencing this ritual in our in a most intimate place. Let's talk about another uh, unique aspect of the Seder meal and the celebration of Passover, and that's the Haggadah, the yes. prayer book that's used during the Seder. That, that will also get us back around to, to books, incidentally. I see a number of new ones published every year, and your book includes a Seder. Now, 
why so many? What, why is that variation important? Oh, that's such an interesting question. You know, part of the beauty of Passover is that there is a set ritual. There are certain prayers you say, but the, that's just the skeleton. Then around that skeleton is room for commentary and discussion. And, you know, this is such, the, the Exodus story is so powerful and has been interpreted in so many ways. So each Seder kind of has a unique flavor to it. It includes all the same prayers, but then there are commentaries that emphasize, you know, there are feminist Haggadahs that talk about liberation in terms of, of, of women. There are civil rights, you know, there was a famous, you know, in the wake of the Selma movie, and, you know, a lot of people have revisited this famous freedom Haggadah from the late 60s that uh-huh. compared the uh, uh, exodus from Egypt to the civil rights struggle. So in a way, each Haggadah takes the Passover, the same core story, but interprets it in ways that are relevant and meaningful for us today. So it's, it's both timeless and timely. So all the new Seder, you know, all the new Haggadahs actually speak to a, a kind of a flourishing of of contemporary meaning and engagement with the text. And I chose to include a, a, a Haggadah because I think it's powerful from a, a, I wanted Christians to be able to experience an authentic Jewish Seder, but also have alongside it contemporary, you know, interpretations that came out of the Gospels and came out of, you know, other Christian commentators on the Exodus story. So I wanted it to be something that's both authentically Jewish, but mm-hmm. also something that can speak to, to people's unique sense of faith. And um, what you've just said allows me to springboard to a a much larger question here. Mm -hmm. Um, You note on your website that teaching about the Jewish heritage of the Christian faith has become your interest and passion. Why? Tell us about that. Well, it it kind of emerged sort of haphazardly. I was... um, when I first became a rabbi, I was uh, at a synagogue in downtown Chicago, mm-hmm. and we were two blocks from a major uh, Presbyterian church, Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, and we had an interface Seder we did every year, and it was a hugely popular event. And after it one year, um, the pastor there asked me if I could uh, teach a class at the church. And I said, absolutely. And it was on the Jewish holidays. And the only time we could find was 8 a.m. on Sunday morning, you know, and this was in February in Chicago. Yeah. So I figured, okay, I'm going to get two or three people at this class. Ah. Well, lo and behold, you know, it grew. And by the end of the class, we had about 55, 60 people. We had to move into the fellowship hall. And uh, it was great. And I saw that there was just this deep interest uh, in learning about the Jewish roots of Christianity, not in any kind of proselytizing way, not in a, in a way that, oh, this is, you know, this was our past and now we've changed in our future, more in an authentic engagement with with. with two different religions and learning from one another. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it was this authentic love of learning. And then, you know, there's so much interfaith marriage. So I was marrying a lot of Jews and Christians and seeing that, you know, there needs to be some way of talking about these issues. And there was, you know, there's definitely a kind of um, a flourishing of of Christian interest in Judaism in in a positive uh, engaging way. And, and so I felt that there was a real need. And I thought, you know, who better to do it than a rabbi? It's kind of like if you were, if you were going to, uh, 
to Ireland and to learn about its history, you would want an Irish tour guide, you know, somebody who knew right. the landscape. Right. And so I'm kind of a, a, a Jewish tour guide because it's, it's my faith and my practice that I love sharing with people that are exploring it and interested in it. So how did this particular book, this particular tour guide manual, uh, you know, a guide to, to Passover for Christians, how did that come about? Did, did uh, Abingdon approach you? or? Well, it's, it's funny. So I knew there was a need because I was doing these interfaith seders and I was speaking at various churches about Passover. And, and there was no great resource that I could give people. You know, people would say, I want to learn more about this. And there were books on Passover, of course, but there was nothing that was geared towards Christians, but was also authentically Jewish. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I searched for it and it wasn't there. So I said, well, I'll write it. And um, I'd always been a writer. I, I have a, uh, a blog that I maintain that gets, you know, about 10,000 visitors a month. So, I'd, you know, I'd had, I had a platform and I was writing for the Huffington Post. And, you know, I always loved writing and I figured this would be a perfect book because um, uh, there, there wasn't anything. So I actually had an agent mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and he found Abingdon. And, uh, you know, I like to joke that uh, – you know, I, I, you know, they're the United Methodist Publishing House, so I'm not sure that they were aware that Passover includes four glasses of wine during the Passover <laughs> meal. But, but they, they, uh, they were interested in it, and it just has been wonderful. I mean, they're they've been a wonderful a publisher, and um, I'm also I've also found quite quite frankly just a lot of. I've I've spoken at evangelical churches and I've spoken yes. at uni, Unitarian churches, so uh-huh. it, it it crosses the gamut of all different denominations of Christianity, which has really been my goal. Great, great. Well, let me ask you a little bit about yourself personally. Um, I noticed in in uh, in uh, looking up uh, your biography, you were originally going to study history and go to law school. So, uh, <laughs> so what happened <Yeah>. there? <laughs> well, you know, I I. Uh, I was in debate in high school and it was sort of, I thrived in it and it was a wonderful experience. But, you know, I had wonderful rabbis growing up. Um, We always belonged and affiliated with a synagogue. We weren't that active. I mean, my mom sang in the choir, but, you know, we weren't the most active members. But I always remembered looking up to the rabbis that I had and, you know, seeing how much love they had for their work. And and, um, and so I kind of had a very positive feeling towards clergy. And then in college, I um, I was I was studying history, but I just on a fluke took a class called Jews and Judaism in America, and mm-hmm. my professor was a guy named Arnold Eisen, and and Arnie is now the um, the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, which trains conservative rabbis. But at okay. that time, he was a professor at Stanford, and we just got to be very close. You know, he invited me to his home for Shabbat dinners, and and so I kind of realized that. Becoming a rabbi would combine everything I love about history, you know, learning and teaching, but also um, allow me to really be involved in a community and building community and, and you know, being active in the world and, and, and serving the Jewish people and humanity. So it all kind of, I, I think I kind of found something that combined everything I love. You know, I think being clergy is one of the last kind of generalist professions. You know, huh. you kind of have to be involved in everything, which I really love. So all of that came together. And it, it's been wonderful. And, and I was fortunate enough uh, to be in a congregation, my first congregation in um, downtown Chicago, that was really 
really involved in the larger community. So I interacted with pastors and imams and, um, you know, really just got very engaged in the larger world. So it's been, um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful situation. And I happened to marry a rabbi as well. So, uh, ah. so we, we, <laughs> it, it all worked out. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. since you are so engaged, uh, um, how do you manage to do it all? That's a, that's an obvious question. Um, uh, you have a, you you lead a congregation, which is a busy day job. You're yes. writing. Um, you're you're active in in improving interfaith understanding. And I know you have a young family. Um, <laughs> and as you've said, I mean, you've got two rabbis at the, as heads of household. So how does that all come together? Well, I'm very lucky in that. My synagogue really supports my writing and speaking, so they they see they see it as a benefit to the wider community for me to be engaged in public. So um, so they, so they so they give me that support, um, and then truthfully, I try to use things for different purposes. So a lot of the the material in the book on Passover. Uh, was generated by classes that I had been giving at synagogues and churches. So I was able to take material that I've used before uh-huh. and repurpose it and 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 craft it uh, into a book. Um, and I also, you know, I have an amazing staff at my synagogue, and you know, uh, uh, and which has really been supportive. And you know, I just try to. It's like with anything in life, you try to make time for for what's most important, mm-hmm. and you know, set priorities, and then you know, not sleep very much. <laughs> <laughs> plus stay under 40 forever right <laughs> yeah and you know it's it's been um it, it's been wonderful you know because i've i've had the chance to really engage with so many interesting people and and um kind of get more involved in in interfaith life in a deeper way you know inter, interfaith relations for so long was kind of centered on you know big organizations and you know major leaders of organizations talking with one another right and that's great and important right. but actually getting in the pews and 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 meeting people who are daily engaged in religious life has been such a joy and i've just you know it's 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 opened my eyes and you know this sounds clicheish but there really is so much that unites us and 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 ties us together uh, as people of faith and there's also things that that are different, but those differences are so enriching when we when we engage in them and discuss them. Mm-hmm. Well, let me suggest that cliches are cliches because <laughs> they're true. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. Well uh, put. So that's that's well, a good reminder. What will be your next project? Either either yeah. writing or are are you working on something else? Tell yeah. us. Well, there's there's two things. I uh, I just turned in my my manuscript ah. uh, when I when I signed with Abingdon. I I um, they asked me to do two books, right? And so and- the the uh, second book, which will come out next year in February, is tentatively titled uh, Rebel Rabbi. What every Christian, <laughs> I love what it. Every, what every <laughs> Christian needs to know about the Jewishness of Jesus. Uh, and this came out of um, you know an idea that you know people know Jesus was Jewish. But a lot of people don't know what that means, right? You know, right. Um, uh, and so this is really looking at the life of Jesus and seeing its Jewish echoes, um, and so that someone, and it's really designed for Christians, but also for Jews, uh, because a lot of people um, Jew, who are Jewish know Jesus was Jewish, but they don't right. know quite what that means. So um, it's been a wonderful. It was a wonderful 
project to engage in. And I, you know, um, the, the, this had been, unlike Passover, there had been books about the Jewishness of Jesus that had been right. published. But right. I tried to take a unique angle in that I wasn't trying to sort of, you know, some of the books out there saying, here's how the Gospels have been misunderstood and here's what it actually meant. Mine was more like, here's how I understand the Jewishness of Jesus um, in, a, in a more pastoral, rabbinic way and in a teaching way. And I look at it as kind of a form of engagement rather than trying to correct uh, misperceptions. Um, so that that was fun. And, and I structured it around the life of Jesus, you know, starting with birth right. all the way to, to death and resurrection. So um, that that manuscript is in. And now I'm tentatively working on a proposal, which I'm excited about, um, to do a book on anti-Semitism, which is a, a less uplifting topic, but something that, yes. you know, we're seeing in the world uh, yes. again today, which I yes. think is, you know, so important to Christians and Jews and Muslims. Let let me just go back and, and comment on what you said about the the the, the book about the the Jewish roots of of, uh, of Jesus from from a pastoral point of view from 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 your point of view I, I think you're you're right I, I'm familiar with a lot of the current writings about you know mm. the the Jewish nature of Jesus and many of them are are scholarly and are confined to the academy so I, I think the perspective that you're talking about is is something that uh, that is needed and and will be welcome so oh, thank you I, I look forward to that book absolutely yeah it's been it's been great to write and I've relied on a lot of the scholarship but I've tried to really add my own voice of experiencing uh, of experiences as a rabbi you know in in some ways I can you know if we assume Jesus was a rabbi which is generally true although the definition of what a rabbi was was different than than today there's a kind of sense that you know uh, 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 it's it's you know, the the kind of teaching he did was very rabbinic. So I, I can kind of uncover that from a rabbinic point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am very much enjoying our conversation, Rabbi Moffick, but uh, I don't want to take up uh, your time. And, and so let's bring this to a close. Um, I thank you so very much. And I wish you a happy Pesach. Thank you so much. It's been a joy and pleasure. What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover by Rabbi Evan Moffick is available at bookstores. The publisher is Abingdon Press, the sponsor of today's podcast. I'm Marcia Nelson from Publishers Weekly. Thanks for listening. <laughs>